I believe God's word is true, and I know I can support that, and it's going to be pretty obvious. But I honestly don't know what I'll say. Why do I believe in this ancient book? And now let me tell you about Kate. Kate is in fifth year in high school, and in her group of eight friends, only two others are attracted solely to the opposite sex. One has started wearing a boy's uniform and wants to be referred to by another name now. Kate is serious about her faith and wishes she had the courage to share the gospel with her friends, but she knows what they're going to say. What right has your Bible got to tell me how to live? It's because of that book, which is so out of date, that there's so much hate for people like me. Do you hate me, Kate? She doesn't know how she's going to respond. In fact, she started to wonder, why does the Bible teach that my friend's behavior is wrong? Now, I'm not trying to be provocative because those stories are based on real people living today in Northern Ireland. And if you haven't faced situations like this, you probably will. And even if you don't, there's a group of children behind me who almost certainly will in a few years' time. We have to ask, is this book the authority for everything that we believe and how we live? Because in the eyes of the vast majority of people outside of church, and perhaps for even some within the church, this book does not have authority. In fact, for them it represents tyranny. It's an illegitimate authority over their lives. And it's causing Jake and Kate problems, doubts even. Perhaps it causes you the same questions. What would you do in their shoes? What would you say? Well, finally, let me tell you about someone called Joe. Joe goes to the same church as Kate and Jake. And he ends up having a discussion with them about this very thing. And he tells them, listen, you can trust God's word to tell you what you believe and how to live. But why, says Kate? How can I be sure? I know that that's what my friends will ask. What will I say? Why, asks Joe. Because it comes from God. Kate, you don't need to defend God's word. Just let it speak, he says. Now, Joe is right. He's right that you can trust God's word to order what you believe and how you live. But Joe is also wrong because while he might not think that we need to give an answer to Kate's friends, the apostle Peter hears her. Peter wrote to people dealing with the same trust issues almost 2,000 years ago. And he gives here two basic reasons for why we can trust God's word. To order what we believe and how we live. The first reason we're going to look at is it's an intellectual reason. It's, it's something that gives us confidence in God's word. That I can trust that it really is a source of authority in my life. So firstly, we can trust God's word to order what we believe and how to live because God's word is a trustworthy source. 
It's a trustworthy source. And now, I must like the number two this week because I've got two reasons why it's a trustworthy source. Firstly, it's a trustworthy source because it's grounded in history. It's grounded in history. Let's look at verse 19 again. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's the bit we're going to focus on now. That verse in itself doesn't really make much sense unless we consider what comes before it. And we looked at this a few weeks ago. Peter has been talking about his experience of the transfiguration. The transfiguration, that event on the mountain when Jesus revealed his true glory, a glory that people would not have seen passing by him in the street. It was a true revelation of who he really was. It was an historic event. That's the point that Peter's trying to make. We were eyewitnesses. We heard the voice. We didn't make this up. There were three of us. We all saw and heard the same thing. But it was an historic event that pointed to a future event. And that's what we talked about last time. It was a preview, if you like, a trailer of Christ's glory in the second coming when he would come again. The Jews of Peter's day believed in the day of the Lord. That's the phrase that the Old Testament uses again and again. For for that day, whenever the Messiah would come. But as far as they were concerned, that was one event. The Messiah would come, he would save God's people, he would judge his enemies, and he would rule forever on the throne of David. And nobody had ever imagined And perhaps they should have, but nobody had ever imagined that there would be a time lag between the coming of the Messiah and that day of the Lord at the end that we are all waiting for, the dawning of the great day that Peter talks about. And so that's why Peter talks about these cleverly devised myths. That's what he's being accused of. That's what the second coming is, according to his critics. It sounds very modern, doesn't it? So what does Peter mean then in verse 19 when he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed? Well, Peter is talking about the Old Testament prophecies, particularly those that talk about the day of the Lord. That's what he means by the prophetic word. And he's saying that those prophecies about a coming Messiah, a coming Messiah who would save and judge and rule forever, They're even more certain now because of what Jesus revealed to them, especially on this Mount of Transfiguration. And so the second coming, according to Peter, it's easier for us, us this morning in the 21st century, to believe that that's really going to happen. He's not saying that the New Testament is more truthful or more certain than the old, or more important than the old. It's simply that the New Testament is more fully confirmed because some of the promises that the Old Testament prophets have made have come to pass. And so we can be sure that what remains to come will happen. And all of this hinges on the fact that things like the transfiguration, events, other events from Jesus' life, that the, that the apostles saw, they were historic events. They were grounded in history. And so the prophets predict 
in the Old Testament. Jesus partly fulfills them. The apostles witness these events with their eyes and with their ears. They record them, they write them down, and that's what we have this morning. The apostolic witness, it's called sometimes. We have their witness to what has happened. And so we can be more, more sure, more certain that what remains is going to come to pass. So why is the Bible a trustworthy source? Well, we've said because it is grounded in history. Why is that significant? Well, three, three short things. First of all, it's significant because it makes historical claims. Listen, if you're starting a religion, probably not a good idea to base it on history because it's open to public scrutiny. I can scrutinize it. I can investigate to see, did that really happen? Or does, does this not really add up? Because if it doesn't, the whole thing falls apart. But the Christian faith is grounded on historic claims. And so it's open to public scrutiny. And listen, men and women, close to the time that these things happened, they died for these things. What they were saying was not popular, but they were convinced that these things happened. And so they gave up their lives for these claims. Secondly, it fulfills prophecies and that's what we've been talking about the bible fulfills prophecies it it makes predictions and some of those predictions in fact many of those predictions have come to pass the great bible commentator matthew henry puts it this way he says since so much prophecy has been fulfilled in the first coming of jesus christians must pay all the more heed to what remains to be fulfilled at his second coming So it makes historical claims, it fulfills prophecies, and it has been carefully handed down. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this. I'm going to refer you back to Richard's sermon last week. He talked about how the Bible that we have, you can be sure and you can be confident that these are the words of Peter. It has been more carefully handed down and copied than any other historical document, any other ancient document. And if that's something you have questions about, refer you back to that sermon. And so each of these areas, historical claims, fulfillment of prophecies, careful transmission, we call, that's just it being handed down from one generation to the next. Each of these things demand our attention, perhaps more so now than ever before, because skepticism is rising. It will bolster our own confidence in the Bible and it will give us opportunity not to win arguments with people. That's not what it's about. But to clear the way to complete our mission, which is what? Is to share the gospel with people. But we need to take seriously the criticisms that may come our way. And so I would encourage you to to read into these things, to think about them. And if Paul brings up the next slide, a a couple of resources. I mentioned this one last time, this really great book, Can I Trust the Bible? It's short, it's simple. And then just another one to add to your arsenal. Cannon Fodder is a website, and that's the name of the website below, michaeljkruger.com. He's written tons of short, simple uh, articles about the main criticisms that the Bible faces 
and how to respond to them. Really, really easy to read uh, and a good website actually to point people to if they're struggling with these things. But listen, ultimately for Peter, he's trying to build confidence in believers, in Christians, in the Bible. So don't feel guilty for wondering, can I trust this book? The biblical writers certainly didn't feel guilty for defending its authority and its trustworthiness. And so we should rest assured that we can investigate these things to build our own confidence. And it's this confidence that the command pay attention is based on. We can't, we don't need to pay attention to this word if it's not trustworthy, but if it is, we need to pay attention to it. But before we do that, before we consider what it means to pay attention, Peter gives a second reason why we can trust this word. Why is God's word a trustworthy source? Because it's grounded in history and because it is given by God's. Mistrust of scripture uh, as a revelation from God, not just from men, but from God. It's not a modern phenomenon. And we've talked about that. Peter is, is facing these claims that, hey, what you're claiming, Peter, as a so-called apostle of Jesus, is a cleverly devised myth. It's just a made-up story. It's not true. And we can think about similar things that people say this, in our own day. But Ultimately, everybody needs an authority for what they believe, what they think about the world, and how they live as well. People who think that they don't really base their, their actions or their beliefs on anything, they do, in fact, dig a little. We need authority. We need someone or something, an idea to base our lives upon and how we live our lives. Now, what we really need is a divine, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful one who is the authority to tell us how to live. Any other kind of authority is liable to make mistakes, to get things wrong, not to be in control of events. And so whether or not this book is a divine authority, it's the crux of the argument. It's the crucial question here. These may be the words of Peter, but is this a message from God? We have the testimony of the prophets and the apostles in this Bible, but do we have God's testimony to us this morning? Read with me verses 20 and 21 again. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How did we get our scriptures? Well, it involved, first of all, people to witness the events. So Moses saw the Red Sea parting uh, or hearing the events. He, he heard the voice speaking from the burning bush. But then they need to record these events. Otherwise, they're lost to us. And it's important to remember that as they record them, they are giving an interpretation of what happens. That's what it means here when it says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Even if you try to record something in an unbiased way, you're giving an interpretation of what actually happened. Consider these two newspaper 
uh, headline headlines. This is, first of all, one from a left-leaning newspaper, and it says, Arkansas becomes the second state to ban transgender athletes from female sports teams. Okay, and now we have a more conservative newspaper, and it, it puts it like this. South Dakota's governor from Arkansas signs executive orders to ensure fairness in girls' sports. They're both true. They're both recording the events. But the left-leaning paper talks about banning things because banning things sounds bad. And the conservative newspaper talks about ensuring fairness because that sounds good, doesn't it? We interpret events when we record them, even as we record them accurately. And so how can we be sure that this is not just Peter's spin on things? Isaiah's spin on things, Moses's spin on things, Paul's. And Peter does admit human involvement. Verse 21, these words, they come from men. Men spoke, but men spoke from God. Peter insists no interpretation of events, of events are from that person themselves. They're ultimately from God. He insists that God is both the origin of the event that happens, the parting of the Red Seas, the sending of Jesus into the world, but he's also the overseer of how these events are recorded in Scripture. And that's why Peter can say in chapter 3 of this letter, Paul's letters are Scripture. He puts them on a par with the Old Testament scriptures. God's word is a trustworthy source. Yes, because it, becomes, because it comes sorry, from reliable witnesses, but not ultimately because of that. Ultimately because it comes from God. That's what gives it its authority. We have a poster in Pathfinders that we, that we put up and, and get the children to say sometimes. It says, God wants to talk to us with us, sorry. God wants to talk with us. It's true. That's why he's given us his word. And if he wants to talk to us, he's not going to leave it to a a well-meaning but ultimately flawed human being to give an account of what happened. He is going to ensure by the Holy Spirit that what they write is his word. That doesn't rule out different styles of writing. It doesn't rule out the fact that these men really were writing out of their own experience, what they saw and what they heard, but ultimately they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So is eyewitness testimony not important then? It's not the ultimate authority. Ultimately, it's God. Maybe we shouldn't look into the historical reliability of the scriptures. Maybe we should just be like Joe and trust This is God's word. That's all we need to know. Well, I want you to imagine an ambassador who's been sent out by a king to a city that he rules over with a message for the steward of that city. And he hands him a scroll. And the steward opens the scroll. And there's a message on that scroll. News from the king and commands from the king. Where does the authority lie? Does it lie in the scroll? Does it lie in the ambassador? No, it it lies ultimately in the king. And yet, when the steward looks at the king's seal on that scroll, 
And he recognizes the ambassador who he knows comes from the king. He knows, ah, these words have the authority of the king. The authority lies in the king, and yet God has given us evidence of trustworthiness, truthfulness, that is the seal on his word. What would you expect God's word to be like? You would expect it to be true. You would expect it not to make mistakes. You would expect it to make predictions and then fulfill those predictions. You would expect archaeological digs to find cities that are mentioned in the Bible that we didn't know about otherwise. All those things bear the mark of authenticity. But ultimately, the authority of God's word does not lie in historians, in scholars, in archaeologists, in smart people who can defend God's word and its trustworthiness. No, its authority lies in the fact that it comes from God. And that's what Peter is saying here. Well, we've looked at how God's word is a trustworthy source. And because of that, we can trust it to order what we believe and how we live. But secondly, God's word is an authoritative guide. Look again at verse 19 with me. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Trust has been established. You can trust this. It's from God. It's been carefully handed down. It's grounded in history. It's the authority of God. So pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. Peter uh, gives here in the second half of verse 19, first of all, he gives the command, pay attention. Then he gives an illustration. He talks about a lamp shining in a dark place. And then he gives a time frame. Until the day dawns, the second coming of Jesus. First, let's consider that God's word is an authoritative guide for faith and life. For faith and life. What you believe and how you should live. We used to watch a program growing up called Smallville. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's about Superman in his teenage years. And there was one episode where the bad guy, he would go to people's houses and he would open the, the power uh, cabinet, I don't know what you call it, on the side of the house, and he would, he would grab the cables and the electric current would flow through him and give him power. And of course, the lights in the house would go out and then he would go into the dark house. And I'm not exaggerating, two minutes after that show was over, our power went out. And I had great fun scaring my mom on the landing. But I remember the candles coming out that night. We had a box of candles that come out when there was a power cut. And when the house was dark, and as far as I remember, the power did not come back on that night. When the house was dark, the candles give light in a dark place so that we don't stumble, so that we don't fall, so that we don't walk into each other, trip over things. They show us the way. They show us the way. And that's the illustration that Peter is using here. Listen, pay attention to this word because you live in a dark place. 
the Lord has not come yet to rule in all his might. You live in a dark place. You've been saved, in verse 4, from the corruption that is in the world. It's a dark place. So you need light. Light to show you how to be saved. The light of the gospel, and Peter talks about that in the first few verses. He talks about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the grace and the peace that comes from him. But you also need light for your feet to walk the Christian life. And he's been talking about that. We've seen that. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We need this light for doctrine and for life, for what to believe and how to live. And those two things can never be separated. We've seen that with Peter. What you believe leads to how you live. And the two must go together. And as we look at the false teachers in a few weeks, we'll see that because they denied the second coming, they lived accordingly. Doesn't matter how I live. They had no authority over them. Perhaps this morning you have no problem in believing in the authority of Scripture, and I imagine that's most people here. You treasure its doctrines, but maybe you don't always connect them to the commands that God gives and how you ought to live. You, you believe in the authority of Scripture, but do you live under it? You can say you believe in the authority of Scripture, but if you're not living under its authority, well, that's, that's what you really believe. In the last sermon, I quoted a letter written by a second century Christian. And Tim's with us this morning. He knows all about this because we both wrote an essay on it. This guy is defending the Christian faith in a time and a place when Christians were marginalized. But while people hated what Christians believed, they were compelled by and attracted to the way that they lived. What, what's the account of that? Why do you live this way? Why do you love when we hate? Why do you face the wild beasts with courage? Why do you shun death, almost welcoming it because you know you're going somewhere else? Well, that's exactly it. How they, what they believed had an impact on how they lived. They lived under the authority of God's word. None of us will be thrown before wild beasts, but you will be mocked, perhaps hated, perhaps even hauled before your employer for your beliefs. And younger guys and girls here this morning with your friends in school, university, the workplace, it's becoming increasingly difficult to say you believe in the Bible and you live by it. Perhaps you fear having to explain or defend your Christian beliefs. And like I mentioned earlier, you might have to, but don't fear. Because ultimately living your life under the authority of God's word is the greatest defense of the faith you can give. At least until you win an opportunity to speak and to explain yourself, to give a reason for the hope you have which is what Peter says in his first letter. So can I suggest that when you're listening to God's word preached, when you're reading it at home yourself, 
don't, don't be okay with just listening to it and understanding it. Write down or, or type into your phone one simple, clear application. This is something that I need to stop doing or this is something that I need to start doing. Write it down. Think about it throughout the day, but ultimately pray to the Holy Spirit. Spirit, help me to live under the authority of this, your word. I can't do this myself. I need your help to walk in step with you, to obey God's word. God's word is an authoritative guide for faith and life until Christ comes until Christ comes. In verse 19 again, we have had the command and the illustration, then the time frame, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The day dawns, he's talking there about the second coming of Jesus and that's going to take up really the rest of the letter as we go into that. And then he talks about this morning star rising in your hearts. The morning star could refer to the sun. It could refer to a planet, but don't get bogged down by that. It's an illustration. Light, the light of Christ coming causes light within our own hearts. It's the experience of joy at the full revelation of the one who the word of God ultimately points to, Jesus Christ himself. And that first song that we listened to this morning talked about that. You see, this book, your Bible, it's the most relevant thing that you can read in your lifetime, but it has a shelf life. One day, you will not need it anymore because one day, the one it points to will come. Those candles that we lit when our lights went out, like I said, I don't think the lights came back on that night, but when the sun rised, in the morning, when the sun rose in the morning, you don't need the candles anymore. They're useless. In fact, you can barely see their light compared to the light of the sun. Uh, And that's what Peter's saying here. When Christ comes, you'll no longer be living in a dark place with a powerful torch. The whole room will be flooded with light. The morning star will rise in your hearts and you will be filled with joy at his coming. Let me close by telling you a little bit more about Joe. Joe reads four chapters of the Bible every day. Pretty impressive and he has been for years. He, he loves to read. Uh, he goes to all the big conferences. He listens to the big name preachers sound preachers on sermon audio. He reads their latest books. Joe loves the Bible. But does Joe love Jesus? Perhaps. And if he's doing all those things, then he's certainly being pointed towards loving Jesus. But it is possible that in doing all these things, he's missed the point. We don't worship the word We revere it because it points us to Jesus, but it's all about him. To live under the authority of God's word, we must bow the knee to Jesus. 
We must follow him. We must seek to love him. How do we do that? By seeking to know more about him. Joe might know about Jesus, but it's possible that he doesn't actually know him. You know, I'd rather be Jake or Kate than Joe. Because for Jake and Kate, despite their questions, perhaps even doubts, challenges that they're facing, they are seeking to live under the authority of God's word in very challenging contexts, potentially at great cost to themselves. And they have the honesty to seek answers to the question, can I trust God's word to order what I believe and how I live? They're seeking confidence in God's words. You shouldn't feel guilty about doing that because Peter answers that very question for us. But ultimately, seek to live under it. Have confidence in it and then seek to live under its authority. They can do that. And you can too with the power of the Holy Spirit who carried men along to write down these words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this word through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would search us with this word, that you'd help us to understand it, that you'd give us more confidence in it, that ultimately you'd help us to obey it. Lord Jesus, thank you that this word is a revelation of you, and your gospel. And as we read it, would we love you more and would we be compelled to live lives of loyal love to you? Help us to live under your authority, King Jesus. Amen.